As John writes in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among you. We read today's word from Revelation among you. Our text today is chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome you. Welcome those of you in our classic venue, those on our moon campus, those watching online. We are in the midst of our Revelation teaching series. And my name is Jason Martin. I'm one of the pastors here at Pathway. Some of you may know that my wife, Elisa, has a teaching job that will sometimes require her, from, uh, require her to leave home for a little bit. And for the last couple months, she has been away from home. Now, obviously, we've made the most of technology by texting and FaceTiming and using Zoom to keep in contact with her and so she can keep up with the kids and help with homework and things like that. I don't share this to you to, uh, to seek a pity party from you, but I will take any pity that you offer. I will receive that. Um, no, honestly, that's not why I bring this up. I bring it up to let you know that the kids and I have been living in utter chaos Without her, it's been crazy. No, that's, that's joking. We're doing, we're doing pretty good, actually, and she's going to be home next week, so we're looking forward to that. But I will say, I will say that it is pretty challenging to function in our home when the boss of the house is missing. When the authority of our home is not around, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. She's our schedule keeper. She's our sanity bringer. She is the one who's in charge. And, uh, and I only have so much to offer at my house. And I've probably shared this with you before, but even at, even at nighttime when my kids are going to bed and they uh, need someone to pray with, they, they almost always want their mom to pray with them. And you, you got to understand, I'm a reverend. All right? I'm like a, a professional religious guy, and they want nothing to do with my prayers. So my, my wife truly has authority in over all the areas of our house. Now, she is the authority in, in our home, and you probably uh, have a lot of relationships involving authority in your life. Uh, you might have some authority relationships in your own home, whether it be a spouse or a roommate or a parent 
or uh, authority relationships in your work, whether it's a boss or a supervisor, authority in your community, in the school that you're in, maybe, maybe uh, the school that you work in or the school that you attend, uh, authority in our community, authority in our country. We have relationships with authority. Some good, some not so good, some, want, some relationships we'd rather live without. Some relationships of authority that are really bad for us. Maybe, maybe they're kind of toxic for us. And uh, we have those relationships of authority. We all have authority in our lives. And the reason why I bring this up is because I believe that the authority relationships that we have in our world and in our lives have a direct impact on the way that we think of the authority of God in our lives and the way that God is our authority. Now, you might be thinking, I don't really think about God as my authority. But let me just pose this to you. If you've ever considered yourself following after God or following Jesus and wanted to be a follower of him, within that claim, you are acknowledging his authority in your life. Or at least that he is an authority in your life. And we need to consider this, how God's authority is often determined by the way that we have our relationships in this world and the authorities that we are under. But we need, I believe, the Spirit of God to flip that around for us. We need the Spirit of God to flip it around so that the God that is in this book is the filter in which we understand what healthy authority looks like. And maybe to be more simple and even more specific, when we think about authority, we need to understand the person and the way of Jesus Christ first, before any other relationship of authority that we may have in this world. And I think it's important that we think, think rightly about authority, not just because God is the authority over us, especially if we claim to follow after him, but also because we need, we need to think rightly about authority, also because authority is something that God wants to share with us. God wants to share authority with us. So if you have not already, please turn in your Bibles or over to your uh, Scripture journal or to the Bible app, the YouVersion app, to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 18, looking at the message to Thyatira. Thyatira was a major inland city in the first century. It stood between Pergamum and Sardis, just as it does here in Revelation. Last week we looked at the message to Pergamum, and next week we're going to be looking at the message to Sardis. And if you remember the map that Pastor Jeff showed us, we looked at the three churches that came before this, all rising up the coast of the sea, and then it starts to turn and go inland over to Thyatira. In more ways than one, it all starts to go downhill from here. <laughs> I mean, you heard the scripture being read earlier in the service. You probably thought to yourself, oh, man, what did I come for today? What is this all about? There are some jarring things in this message. There are some words that are difficult to hear, a word that might be hard to understand, and I believe that these challenging words and difficult descriptions are intentionally there for us. They are intentionally there for us, and we're going to be talking about that today. The message to Thyatira starts in typical fashion in verse 18. 
And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. These are the words of Jesus who calls himself the Son of God. If you remember at the beginning of Revelation, when John encounters the coming of Jesus, he finds it difficult to describe what he sees. He uses a lot of things like this. It's like that. And he says, when he describes Jesus, he sees one like the Son of Man, his eyes like flames of fire and his feet like fine brass. And Jesus uses similar language here to this church, but now uses the term Son of God for himself. And up until now, we have not heard those words, Son of God, in Revelation. With these words, John is not only continuing to unveil, to reveal Jesus Christ, but is also contrasting Jesus with those in authority in Rome. Think about this. Specifically, the Caesar, who was considered divine and actually given the title Son of God. My daughters would say, actually? And I would say, actually. Actually given the title Son of God. And the more the church actually looked at Jesus, the more they would better understand how different he is than any other earthly power. So right from the start, we are encountering Jesus. We are encountering him and Thyatira and the other churches that are reading this message are listening to the one who has all authority. He has all authority. The emphasis of the fire, having fire in his eyes, and his feet, like bronze, suggests that he knows and he sees and he is coming. He is moving toward his church with strength and stability and intention. He does not come half-heartedly. He might seem like he's far from you right now, but Jesus is always coming to you. Make no mistake, Jesus is not absent from you. It might seem like he is far from you. You might feel like he is distant, but he is coming to you. And when he comes to you, he always comes exactly as you need him to come. And it's never half-heartedly. Specifically here to the church of Thyatira, he is bringing judgment that will not only alarm the church, but will compel the church to action. Before he points out what is lacking in them, because this is, seems to be a pattern, right, in, in these messages. There's usually, this is what I would like to see different about you, or this is what I hope goes differently for you, that kind of language. Well, he, he has something positive to say. He's acknowledging something about them, highlighting their faithfulness. In verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Unlike the message to the, to the church in Ephesus, the church in Thyatira has not forgotten their first love. In fact, their love for God has only increased. They have grown in their faithfulness and service. If you've ever been around a family with multiple kids, it can be interesting to see how same parents, same school, maybe even the same church, and one might be more generous than the other, and another might be more discouraged than the other. 
One might love to talk about their day at school. Another might have a hard time saying anything at all. And that's what it's like with these churches that we've been going over. They all worship the same Jesus. They all have the same word to read, the same message to read in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, and the scriptures that come. But yet they all have these different experiences. Some experiencing positive things, some negative things. And Thyatira seems to be in this place where they are experiencing a lot of positive things in their faith towards God. But Jesus has something against them. Verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. It appears that there is a prophet among, these, among the church here in Thyatira who is bringing a destructive word. She is bringing a destructive and deceptive word. The prophet is a woman in their midst who Jesus knows well enough to give her this title, the name Jezebel. Now, we should not take from this that because this woman is a bad prophet and a teacher, a bad teacher, that women should not be prophets and teachers. If that were the case, then last week's scripture would tell us that men should not be prophets or kings. That is not the point of this message here. The problem is that this specific woman has been teaching and deceiving this community. And yet, it is in fact because it's a woman we get this message told the way that it's told. She is an authority in their midst who is blinding the eyes of some of the servants in the church and bearing children, figuratively speaking, through that deception. Now, more on the kids in a moment. First, let's talk about Jezebel. If we're to plainly read verse 20, we might read it like this. We might say that the problem is there's a woman in the church who encourages people to eat food sacrificed to idols and have sex with people that they shouldn't be having sex with. But I don't think that's how we should simply read it. The big picture is that the influence this woman is having in the church is leading people to live in ways of misguided worship. They are associating themselves with the worship of idols rather than the worship of Jesus. So you may be wondering why. Why does he mention food sacrificed to idols? Especially for us. It seems like one of those things where we could just skip over. This isn't something we deal with all that often. Should I be eating this meat? It was sacrificed to an idol. That's not some, a conversation that we have. But it was a fairly controversial issue at the time. Because often, the only way that people could get meat to eat was through the market, and that meat was meat that was sacrificed to idols. And there's even controversy among the writers of Scripture on how they should handle that meat. But the Thyatirans here are specifically told that the meat that they've been eating is linking themselves with idol worship. And the sexual immorality or fornication that Jesus brings up was actually a way to provocatively describe that worship. So in this verse, we can read it like this. Jezebel is getting people to eat food sacrificed to idols, which is sexual fornication. 
Or Jezebel is getting people to practice sexual immorality, which is eating food sacrificed to idols. He is not necessarily drawing attention to two separate moral sins. He is summarizing misguided worship with terms that hit close to home. In one sense, Jesus is saying to the church, Jezebel is using her authority to get some of you to cheat on God. Jezebel is using, some of her, using her authority to get some of you to cheat on God. And when we cheat on God, we need to think about what this looks like. When we cheat on God, it's almost always because we are looking to appease another authority in our life so that we also might obtain authority. I'm going to explain what this looks like, but let me say that again. Oftentimes, almost always, when we cheat on God, it's because we are trying to appease another authority in our lives so that we might hold on and get authority for ourselves. This is what the devil does. Do you remember the interaction that Satan has with Jesus in the wilderness that is temptation? The third temptation, he takes Jesus up to a mountaintop. He says, look at all the kingdoms of this earth. And then he says, if you bow to me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the earth. Satan is essentially saying, if you appease me, I will give it all to you. So the temptation is, if we just appease this other authority, then I'll get what I want, and then I will also have the authority. If you appease the God of rain, you might begin to think that you have authority over the weather. If you appease the God of sex, you might begin to think that you have power over your sex life. If you appease the God of nationalism, you might think that you have power over your nation. Jezebel has this spirit within her. And it's not just that God is disappointed or disgusted by the cheating. He is saddened by the fact that we think that we need to appease any God at all. God has no interest in being appeased. So when we cheat or when we worship other idols in that manner, we are demonstrating even a form of worship that God is not looking for. John's audience would have known this name, Jezebel. They would have remembered the stories. Queen Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel. She was against the people of Israel and their God. She had prophets killed at her command. She brought strife and division in the kingdom. Jezebel had a name and a reputation that lasted a long time. And just like I'm pretty sure, I may be wrong, there aren't a ton of Judas boy names on the baby list online. Jezebel probably doesn't make the girl list, although I did read, I shouldn't have said that because I did read it's making a comeback. Yeah, it's making a comeback. I think there is one story in particular that can help us understand why her name is used here, though, in this message to Thyatira. In 1 Kings chapter 21, we read this story. 1 King Ahab 
and you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell it to you. King Ahab is walking around his palace, and he sees a vineyard, a garden, near his palace, and he wants it. He wants it. So he figures out who's the, whose vineyard it's owned by, and it's Naboth. Naboth is, a, is, a, is from Jezreel, and he tells Naboth that he would like his vineyard. Not only that, he says, I will give you a better vineyard than the one that you have in exchange. Or if that's not what you want, I will pay you for your vineyard. I will pay the money that you want. The king offers to give him a better vineyard or money to pay for the one he's got. And it's basically like, I'm the king. I want your garden. So let's figure out the plan on how that transfer is going to happen, right? The only problem is that Naboth's vineyard was something that he received as an inheritance from his ancestors. And he goes to the king and he says, I'm, I'm not going to give you this land. The Lord forbids me from giving you this vineyard. I'm not going to give it to you. Ahab is distraught. The scriptures say that that night he lay on his bed sulking and could not eat. And this is funny to me. <laughs> this is funny to me. This king probably gets whatever he wants, and he has denied this one vineyard, and now he is sulking on his bed. He can't go to sleep. He can't eat anything. And I just imagine this king tossing and turning, sulking about, throwing his clump of grapes against the wall, just picking at his bread, glowering through tearful eyes why he can't have this vineyard. He's just a pitiful, pitiful king right now. He is a sad soul. But Jezebel, the king's wife, enters in and sees him, and she asks what the problem is. And Ahab tells the whole story. I wanted this vineyard. I offered to give him a better one. In fact, if he didn't want that, I'd be willing to pay for him, uh, pay for the vineyard, and he didn't want it. He said it was something like it was an inheritance and he didn't want to give it. And I guess, I guess he just said no. And the queen, Jezebel, is thinking to herself, you're a king. If you want a vineyard, you take a vineyard. You get what you want. And then she says, is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard from Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed the letter with the king's seal and sent them to the officials of Jezreel. Inside the letter was her plan. Have a fast and at the end of the day hold a feast and invite Naboth to the table. Give him a great seat at the table and have two scoundrels sit at his left and one at his right. And then have them say that he, that, that Naboth is bringing, uh, have them bring charges against Naboth because he is cursing both God and king. Have them do that. And then when that happens, you can go out and stone him to death. So that's the plan. So they, the letters get sent. The officials get the letters. They arrange the, the fasting day, the feast in the evening. They bring Naboth to the table. They give him a seat, sitting between the scoundrel at his left and the scoundrel at his right. The scoundrels say that the, Naboth has been cursing both God and king, and now we should stone him. And everyone's like, that's right, we should stone him. So they take Naboth out, and they stone him to death. As soon as Jezebel heard the news, she went to the king and said, Get up and take possession of the vineyard. Naboth, the Jezreelite that refused to sell it to you, is now no longer alive but dead. 
And this is just sad, but when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard. In this story, we see how the wickedness of this woman was appeasing the authority over her, her king, so that she could essentially grasp authority for herself. And her methods of deception, plotting, murder, and theft were just a few things that revealed her desire for authority and power. Needless to say, it did not end well for Jezebel. She, uh, her way, ways of wickedness were eventually put to end as she was later killed by a pack of dogs. And that is what Jesus brings and promises to the church, in, church of Thyatira. Not the pack of dogs, but judgment. Jesus says in verse 21, to the spirit of this woman who is named Jezebel, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I, were, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Apparently, the truth has already gotten to Jezebel, she is already this prophet. She has already heard and refused to turn to God. She has continued to deceive people in the church, even after she's been called to repent. And then we get some of the harshest words in Revelation. Sometimes sermons need warning labels. This sermon probably should have had a warning label at the beginning, not just because who's preaching it but because of what is said in the text. Thank you for your gasp. Of, I appreciated that. These are jarring words that are hard to hear, but we must hear them. Jesus says that he will throw her onto a sickbed. He's going to throw her on a bed, not a bed of pleasure, which might be more desirable for an adulteress, but a bed of pain. A bed that will not only welcome her, but those committing adultery along with her. The imagery is strong here. There is an intentionality by the Son of God to bring about repentance in this woman and to his servants. And he is using graphic and harsh language for them to hear. And it only gets more intense when he says, And I will strike her children dead. Who talks like this? What kind of God talks like this? If we are to read this plainly, we see Jesus throw a woman and her followers on a really uncomfortable bed. Then whatever kids she has, God's going to come along and kill them. And that sounds horrendous because it is. That sounds horrible. But I am quite certain that we are not to read it plainly like that. That being said, I do think they are words that we are called to hear and respond to. We have talked about how the original hearers of Revelation would have understood the literature in which they are reading. They would have understood the literary nature of this book. Not that it was literal, but the literary nature. And not only that, but the rhetoric, the kind of speaking that's being used. 
They would have understood this. They would have understood this was prophetic literature that uses imagery, often striking imagery, to unveil something previously hidden. Now, just to give you an example of how that might be different, a different way of reading and understanding things. You uh, may have seen a comic book or two in your life. I didn't grow up reading a lot of comic books, but I am familiar enough with comic books. You know, when there's those fight scenes in comic books, there's those graphic bubbles above above their heads, and you'll see words like boom, whack, pow, that kind of thing. Well, if, if Stephen was to come up here and smack me on the face... I'm pretty sure there would not be this graphic above my head that said pow. And I guarantee you, that's not what it would sound like. It might be the last thing I remember saying, (laughs) the word pow. But that is, we all know what's happening when we see that in a comic book. And in the same way, those who are, those who are hearing what is being said in Revelation know what's, they know what's happening. They might not understand it all, but they know what's happening. They know what's, being, they know what's being communicated. Everyone recognizes that a comic book, the literature that that is, and the, the type of rhetoric that's used is for that literature. And you get it when you see it. And we should also consider that when we look at Revelation. The rhetoric that is used is a way of speaking to be heard. We've emphasized that over and over with the reading of Scripture in our midst to hear it, to hear it, so that a response might follow. It's like when I'm about to leave for church on a Sunday morning, because it usually happens on a Sunday morning, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the kids, and I say, if you don't get to the car, I'm going to leave without you. Now, do I want my kids to go with me? Yes, I do. Have I left without them? Yes, I have. (laughs) But that's only if at least one of the kids there has their driver's license. (laughs) But we use that language in order to get a response from those who hear it. It is a type type of way that we speak. And Jesus himself has spoken this way before, many times. Like when he says, if your eye causes you to to stumble, gouge it out. Or if you cause a little one to fall, it would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and have you thrown into the sea. We all understand Jesus does not want us to gouge our eyeballs out and tie millstones around people's necks and throw them to the sea. But we know what's happening when he's saying it. Or at least if we don't, we say, Wait, Jesus, what are you saying? And in that question, we start to get an answer and start to get some clarification on what he's saying. Sometimes we're so used to it, we don't even think about it. But it's the same kind of thing here. When he says that he will strike her children dead, he is likely saying that her ways, her ways, her teachings will be led to destruction. The fruit that she bears is rotten, and will be destroyed. There is no future to her wickedness. There is no future for her ways. As Psalm 1 says, the ways of the wicked lead to destruction. 
her authority will not last. This type of authority has no future. This is more than just eating the wrong type of food or having the wrong kind of sex. The language that is used here points to a greater issue. Cheating on God and surrendering to another authority in your life. The harshness of Jesus' words are for a purpose, and his purpose is always repentance. Repentance for her and those who have listened to her. We continue hearing in verse 23, And all the churches will know that I am who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Jesus tells those who have not followed the teachings and authority of Jezebel, which he adds, by the way, some have attributed to Satan. He tells those who have not followed her to hold fast. To hold fast. We looked at that last week. This idea of holding fast to the Lord. Whenever I read that, I imagine being on a really bumpy ride and quickly needing to grab whatever I can hold on to to stay secure. And we all could probably agree that is what life is like. That is what life is like. Grabbing a hold of God to deal with all the false prophets and the bad kings, the Jezebels and the Caesars, and the devil himself, the bad bosses, and the impatient landlords, and all those figures in our life that might give us a bad idea of what authority is. But God's authority is different. Unlike a King Ahab who sulks and complains when he doesn't get the vineyard that he wants, the Son of God comes with fire in his eyes and bronze on his feet to demonstrate his authority. And unlike Jezebel, who deceives her people, kills her enemy, and steals their inheritance. The Son of God comes as truth, offers his life for his enemy, and shares his inheritance with them. This is where Jesus flips the script. As I said earlier, authority must be understood in the life person, way, works of Jesus Christ first and not the relationships of authority that we have in this world. Not only because he is our authority, but because he desires to share that authority with us. So that was my introduction. The sermon's going to begin now. (laughs) Listen to this. Verse 26 The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Let's stop there. For those that conquer, essentially those who are in Christ, are given authority over the nations. What does that mean? What does that mean? First of all, we need to think about this. Nations, when, when this is said here, nations do not mean nations as we think of them, right? Nigeria, Canada, Iraq, Mexico. 
That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about people and ethnic groups. And this authority, again, is an authority that is not like the powers of this world. It is an authority that looks like the person and the way of Jesus. If, and this is so imperative to to get, I believe, if we do not see Jesus' authority in the light of him being a servant of all, which he said that is why what he came to do and who he always is, if we do not see authority in that light, then our, our picture of authority is lacking. If we do not see Jesus' authority in the light of the cross that he dies on, which is God's power demonstrated in weakness, if we do not see authority in that light, then our perspective authority is not right. This authority is an inheritance that we share with Christ as we read in verse 27. So what do we do with this authority? Well, there's a lot of things that could be said. There's a few things that I'd like to mention here today. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can see that we have the authority to bless. We have the authority to bless. This has been a promise from the beginning of the Bible. God has a desire through Abraham that his seed, that through his seed, the nations of the world would be blessed and they in turn would be a blessing. Christ-like authority blesses our neighbor, our stranger, and our enemy. Because of his death and resurrection, we have the authority to forgive. Because Christ has the authority to forgive sins, we don't need to hold sins against our brother. I am not suggesting that we just forgive and forget. Please do not hear me saying that there are not relationships where forgiveness needs to happen and distance needs to be made. But we have the authority because Christ is the one who forgives sins. We do not need to hold sins against our brother. And we do not not need to be enslaved in unforgiveness and non-forgiveness. Because Christ has taken care of it all, because Christ has forgiven sins, we can look to our brother or our sister and say, you are forgiven in Jesus. Because of his life, death, and resurrection, we have the authority to serve. Because Christ came to be a servant of all, we too share in this kind of authority. We share in the freedom of not needing to be served. Jesus does not need our service. And if we have the same type of authority as him, we do not need to be served. Our desire is to serve. Our desire is not seeking any place of honor. But we have the freedom to kneel down with a water basin and a towel and wash the feet of the other. These are just a few things that when you consider sharing in the inheritance of having authority over the nations that we have authority in, blessing, forgiving, serving, consider the authority of God. He is not the king who sulks over a garden he can't have. He is not the kind of authority who puts an innocent man between two scoundrels to have him killed. He is the innocent man who chooses to die between two scoundrels. He is not the authority who needs violence to conquer. He is the God who overcomes 
by laying down his life. He is not the authority who bows down to power for the sake of getting his way. He is power demonstrated through weakness making a way for us. In light of that, we are more able to rightly hear what Jesus says when he quotes Psalm 2, that this authority is like a rod of iron breaking the earthen vessels of pottery. The things of this earth, the powers of this world, the presence of sin and death. These things through Jesus are broken, crushed, and destroyed through every blessing we give, every time we forgive, every neighbor, stranger, enemy that we love and serve. In this authority that we participate in the judgment of God, we make room for his judgment. We make room for his salvation. This is the one. This is the way, the one way that we live as conquerors in Christ. Jesus invites us to see this and receive this morning star. This is the hope we wake up to. The hope we wake up to if we would simply open our eyes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your blessing and your forgiveness and the way that you have come to serve us. I pray that we would recognize you as the Son of God who has come to demonstrate power by dying for us on the cross, to demonstrate power over sin and death and in victory raising from the grave. We thank you, God, that you have invited us to share in your inheritance. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to follow after you, that we would recognize you as our authority, and that you would allow us to see how we can, how we can live that out, how we can be surrendering to you. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for giving us a chance to gather and to worship and to give you praise. I ask that we would honor you as we go through our, the rest of our time, honor you as we go through our week. We thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.